Uh, Brother Andre Maria, is there, brother, are you, are you hankering for a taco now before we head into Lint? I'm sorry, Mike. I, I had myself muted. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I was actually sort of um, getting interested just now as you were reading that. I was thinking... <laughs> I wonder what I wonder what a, a trip to Mexico would be like and having some real Mexican Mexican food. Well, the first thing you have to know is that you have to bring parasite killers. <laughs> because oh, I've been there, and yeah, <laughs> because you will get Montezuma's revenge. Uh, yes, I've I've gotten it. Uh, yeah, and, and I know people that have gotten it and brought it back here and had it for like like an un, an unreal amount of time, like thirty days. And finally, the wife goes, "You need to go to a doctor. It's not going to cure itself." You're not a Mexican. You can't drink their water. Uh, it also happens to some people when they go on cruises and you do like, like a land excursion to Acapulco or Cozumel or whatever. You've got to be very, very careful. Uh, but it does. I mean, it does make me wish for a taco now. <laughs> I'm going like, all right, yeah. how much How much longer am I going to be on the air? Because I can get in the kitchen right there. <laughs> I can whip up some tacos fairly quickly. Uh, well, Brother Andre, good morning. How are you? I'm well, Mike. How are you today? Well, I am well. I feel fantastic. We have a lot of great stuff going on. You are privy to one of them. Don't say anything. Um, uh, we, I will tell you folks that are listeners and fans of Brother Andre's Reconquest, we have discovered the lost episodes. One <laughs> through 140 have been discovered, and you will be able to listen to them at your leisure very soon. Uh, so uh, uh, that's good news, brother. I want to start off our wisdom Benzie with a question uh, that Mrs. O'Connell actually wanted me to ask you, because it's all the rage on Twitter. You might have even seen it. So there's a guy on Twitter that's saying that there is nothing in uh, the uh, in the, the 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 Roman canon of the mass or in the the, the tradition of the mass where the um, uh, the, the, the parishioners are to bow or nod their head, their chin down, to the priest during the entrance procession. And he says it's wrong and you need all need to stop doing it. Uh, I confess that, uh, I, uh, I, that, I, that I do this, but it's only because I, I, I was kind of told to do it. Uh, is he right? Now, who said this? Who said it, Maggie? Some guy on Twitter who just had to start uh, Catholic badgering today is who said it. Uh, she'll find out who it was in a moment. But uh, well, it, it doesn't really matter. I was just wondering if you were instructed by a priest or if this is just some guy with an opinion. Uh, keep in mind, there's no, there's nothing in the rubrics. No, there's nothing in the rubrics for an awful lot of things. Right. You know, if somebody says there's nothing in the rubrics for this, well, I'll tell you, there's nothing in the rubrics that says what the people in the pew do Period. The rubrics in the missal tell the priest what to do, and the and the, and the ministers. That that is the deacon and the subdeacon, and also um, to some degree it mentions what servers do. But even then, a lot of the um, moves of the uh, uh, acolytes, the the altar servers for low mass and even high mass, are not even mentioned in the rubrics. There's a presumption that these things are being done, but you know, commentators on the rubrics and rubricists and, and, and liturgists have to sort of fill in blanks where the rubrics don't specifically call for something to be done. So somebody who says, this isn't in the rubrics, therefore you people in the pew can't do it, um, is, I think, showing his ignorance. He said it was as bad as the Oran's position. Yeah, he said it was as bad as the Oran's position during the Our Father. I, I, I well, the Oron's position during the Our Father is not traditional in in the West. It's it's not something that we do in the traditional rite. Um, you know, in 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 the Eastern rites, they do this sort of thing. You see the Oron's position much more during during the liturgy. And I'm not saying this to I'm, I'm you know so I'm not I'm not defending novelty right but <laughs> uh, but the Oron's position is not novelty in those places where it's practiced uh, with long standing so um, you know some people see the Oron's thing and assume this is some kind of weird charismaticy thing or something um, no the the bowing to the priest uh, on the way in or to the crucifix uh, during the procession uh, I don't know who told you to do it but we do it here. 
I saw um, it. I and, saw it being done. I saw David Simpson's uh, dad, my first Latin mass. I sat next to Mr. Marion, uh, David Simpson's uh, deceased father. Uh, eternal rest grant unto him, O God, let perpetual light shine upon him. May rest in peace, uh, uh, man. So I just follow what Mr. Marion did. Whatever he did, I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think... Um, I, I, I think there's, a, there's just a, a widespread ignorance of these things uh, as far as saying, do, now, do you have to? I have, I have a friend who, who uh, she's a lawyer, a lady lawyer, wonderful person, absolutely wonderful person, and she always wants to know the right way of doing everything. Uh, and um, she was asking me, she asked me in, in writing once about uh, an email. She lives around here, but she asked me by an email. What... Uh, What's the list of the right way to serve, to, 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 to assist at Mass for the faithful? Because, of course, you'll find different missiles that say s some slightly different things. And she said, when I was at Mass in this other state where I used to live, um, the, we, we, we saw that there were these uh, priests who would assist in choir, and uh, they had printed up a list of when, you know, sitting, standing, kneeling, and everything was done, and the faithful followed them. Well, of course, when priests are in choir, when clergy's in the choir, and I don't mean in the choir loft, which is actually a Protestant thing, <laughs> the choir loft. That's oh. not a Catholic thing, originally. Um, then again, neither are pews in church. Uh, but the, 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 uh, the, the, those who sit in choir, meaning in, in that place before the, but between the uh, body of the church where the faithful sit and the, um, the, the, the sanctuary, Nowadays, because you don't have a choir in most churches, you have um, those who assist in choir are really sitting in the sanctuary. But so they would have their own um, customs of when to sit, stand, kneel, and all that stuff. And that's not going to be the same as the faithful. So I wrote back to my friend and I said, "Look, there, there, there's, there's just custom. That's it. And the customs are different in different places. Makes sense. And I've been, to, I've been to Italy." And you look around and you say, well, what's the custom here? I don't know, because everybody's doing everything different. <laughs> and that's the way it is. And that's the way it was. Um, so the idea, the, the absolute liturgical uniformity for the faithful in the pews is very much an Anglo-American thing. Um, or it's a sort of a Germanic Anglo-American thing. Interesting. Uh, where, where it's... People who, who sort of demand a, a kind of uh, order, <laughs> um, you don't see it in, in, in the Mediterranean world. And um, I there's a story about uh, Hilaire Belloc. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it's kind of amusing. Now, keep in mind, Hilaire Belloc was, um, was half French. And um, he, he sort of favored his French side in a lot of ways. And he would do things in England that would kind of hack off the English because this was not an English thing. Well, he's in church, and he was standing up when everyone else was sitting. And the usher came to him and said, um, Sir, it's, it's, it's time to sit. The people in back of you can't see what's going on. And he turned to the usher and he said, Go to hell, I'm praying. <laughs> I was told that story really by an I was told that story by an Australian priest um, who actually worked in the Holy See. I, I don't. I, I, he was the one who I told you got the death threats for Cardinal Pell. So it's one of these Not things Father where Robinson. if it ain't true, it ought to be. Not Father Robinson. No. Okay. I was just no, curious. he worked for the Holy See. Father Robinson is an SSPX priest. They're yes. not going to employ an SSPX priest in the Holy See. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of do need to know what the enemy is doing. <laughs> it makes sense. No, he was employed by the Holy See. He worked for the Holy no, See. No, no, I, I, I was making a funny, uh, but it wasn't funny. Right. Uh, okay, I, I, I want to, uh, since it's share time, I would like to share. Um, I made what someone pointed out to me was a delict during a Mass. No names will be mentioned. No locations. Well, I'll give it away. So I asked the priest afterward. I asked him a question, and I said, uh, you know, I'm sorry if I did that. I, I, I didn't realize, didn't know. And he goes, and I know this priest very well, and he goes, Mike, whoever told you that is wrong. There, there are no rubrics for the people. You, there, there's, there, 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 there's nothing. There, you could stand the whole time if you wanted. You can kneel the whole time if you wanted. There are no rubrics. 
so I actually knew this. This is 2023. So he told me this in 2014. So I've actually kind of known a little bit about this for nine years now. Um, uh, and you're right. There are traditions where, <laughs> where you go to one church and they and they stand here, and you go another one, and they kneel during the whole thing. Um, but when Maggie said that on Twitter, I went, I, "That doesn't sound right to me. I, I don't think that that's correct." And I and she goes, "Well, I know who we can ask." <laughs> and, and I said, and "She goes, we, we can ask brother." <laughs> I said, "Yes, we do have a resident uh, expert here in these matters that, uh, or if there's something that's someone that's very knowledgeable in these matters that we could uh, 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 that we could ask." And you know, a lot of people have questions about, and, and you answer them every year, brother. Here on Wisdom Wednesday, a lot of people have questions about Lent and about fasting and about what's the rule and what's the rule. Well, if you if you really want to read the rule, you can find it on the. Uh, I'm sure the US, USCCB has a publication on it. We'll tell you exactly what it is, um, and it probably says every Friday abstinence, um, and and then uh, it maybe make some suggestions. You could even get out of that if you're a child or if you're over sixty or something to that effect. Um, but it's not really what the rule is. It really is how far can you go to mortify yourself and to imitate Christ's 40 days of fasting uh, in, in the desert, which we're doing our, our best uh, Thomas Akempis uh, imitation of Christ, right? So it's, it, it's what can you do? And, and, you know, you, and every year you know, we get berated and beaten up if you're on social media about this. You should be doing this. Yes, the Eastern rites give everything up. I believe they still do it. No dairy and no meat, right? Um, they, so their, their Lent is more strict than ours, um, and they have a whole pre... Well, just as we have Septuagesimatide, they have a pre-Lenten season, too, and like part of it is milk meat tide, and I forget what they call it, but like there's milk meat Sunday, and from for, for, for a brief stint, you can still have milk meats, you know, dairy products, in other words, all dairy products. But yeah, they give that up too. I mean, um, you know, if you really want to go back to what the original Lent was, it was the diet of the Garden of Eden. Only fruits and vegetables. There, there was no meat. There were no milk meats. No animal products, period. So it's really a vegan diet, to use a modern term. So vegans should love it. <laughs> yeah, no eggs, by the way. Why do we have Easter eggs? What's the custom with Easter eggs? And that's a, well, good, that's you know, a eggs, good story. Eggs... Eggs last a long time. If you know anything about real eggs, you know, in, in these, in these, when you buy eggs in the supermarket, they have been washed, right? Right. Now, eggs, when they come out of the chicken, they have a coating on them that preserves them for quite a long time. When you wash them, you take that stuff off. So you have, you've just um, kind of uh, accelerated the clock, on on the chickens when uh, on the eggs rather when they're going to go bad, so then they that's the, why they have to refrigerate them and all that stuff. So if you if you take eggs even non refrigerated, you can store them for quite a long time and easily you could store them all during Lent. Sure, and they used to store eggs in lard and things like that so that it would really preserve them because it kept any air from getting through uh, the shell. And then they would take them out and. So for Easter Sunday, um, you know, one of the they'd have all these various customs of decorating the eggs, um, and having that, you know, the kids find the eggs and the egg hunt and all that stuff. Today we just, oh, it's just a thing we do, like an Easter egg hunt, but we don't know the origins of it. The origins of it was we haven't been eating eggs all during Lent, and now we have this. So if, if you really think about it, the, the the sources of protein during Lent would have been basically limited to legumes and, and whatever other kind of, and, and grains that have, that are rich in protein, you know. So it's not, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not what we think of it as, just giving up, um, <clears throat> just giving up chocolate bars, you know. Yeah, Father Damien likes to crack the joke, don't come to me and tell me you gave up M&Ms for Lent. <laughs> and some people go, well, I just gave up the red ones. I still do the brown, the yellow, and the green ones. Um, you know what's fascinating about the Easter, Easter egg story, though, brother? Brother Andre Marie, the St. Benedict Center and host of Reconquest uh, Radio here on the Crusade Channel. Uh, live talk radio the way it should be here with our regular Wisdom Wednesday uh, visit. Brother, what's fascinating about this and what may just pass by most people's thought and they wouldn't even thinking about it, 
This is another thing that has made its way all, all the way into the modern world here. We still repeat it. Everyone, there's still the custom and the tradition. Cadbury has picked up on it, for example. But the Easter egg, at the end of the day, is a Catholic tradition. You know, even video gamers and movie makers plant what in their games, games for people to find? Easter eggs. anything about video games. I hate video games. Okay, they plant Easter eggs. And, and there's on different forums that are dedicated to finding East, what's called Easter eggs, which are things that you're not supposed to find in the actual text of the game. But it may be, oh, okay. uh, yeah, it may be something about the guy that made the game. It may be his uh, uh, high school graduation picture or something stupid like that. But the point is, is that it's another, ca another tradition, a Catholic tradition that makes its way into the modern world. And people don't even consider that this, well, why is that? <laughs> As Wallace Shawn asked every Wednesday from my dinner with I, with Andre, well, why is that? Why, why is that? Why, why, why is it that way? <laughs> um, but it is a fact uh, that this is a Catholic tradition here of storing the eggs. And on Easter Sunday, whippy, Lent's over. <laughs> he is risen indeed. Let's have some eggs. It's a beautiful thing, folks. Uh, Brother Andre has a... And there are a lot of those things. You could do an entire reconquest on that subject. Which one? That The things that make their way into the modern world that have their origins in Catholic tradition. Oh, could, Dr. Foley wrote a book on it called The Origin of... The, the, the Catholic Origin of Everything. or something. It's got a funny name. But, um, yeah, oh, no, you could do multiple reconquests on that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, saying, uh, saying God bless you, I mean, when somebody sneezes. I mean, that's that that's a, a Catholic thing, and it has a concrete history with St. Gregory the Great. There's so many things. And as Gordon Liddy, G, G Gordon Liddy, the G-Man, as uh, uh, Liddy would point out on every single of his radio shows, that when you say goodbye, this is the conjugation of God be with ye. Uh, and that contraction, uh, yeah, yeah, a contraction rather of, of God be with ye uh, when you say goodbye. In any event, brother, I want to. I really am interested in your uh, supernaturalizing our social interactions uh, at Rim, which you can all find at Catholicism.org. And when you get there, you just need to sign up for Brother's email, and you'll get an email every week or, or whenever he puts out a, an ad rim notifying you that a new one is posted. Um, and I'm especially curious about this because, again, you are talking or you're writing about something that Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones has written uh, written about, and uh, and I just I'm fascinated by it. I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, so I'm reading it and I'm excited to talk to you about it. But before we get going, can can you do a couple of terms for us so people will uh, so our listeners will know, like anagogy. What is anagogy? Uh, okay, so or am I pronouncing <clears throat> it wrong? Uh, well, I was I wasn't going to point that out. I was going to ignore it, and no, then I was just no. going to eventually pronounce it correctly. No, no. <laughs> I knew I was mispronouncing it, or I thought I suspected that I was. No, Mike, it's Anagachi. You said it wrong. Okay. Just kidding. Um, yeah, it's Anagachi. Anagachi, um, okay. So there are, um, I mean, some of the listeners would have heard me talking about this multiple times um, in various reconquests and as well as uh, on, this, on your show on Wisdom Wednesday. But there are the four senses of Holy Scripture, right? Four senses of sacred scripture. Um, and these are, it's a, it's a, this is a standard of medieval exegesis, medieval biblical exegesis, that comes to us really from the patristic era these concepts um, are born and as ways to read scripture. And in the Middle Ages, they become refined uh, in such a way that it's not simply anymore just different ways of reading biblical passages. It's also how to live. Okay. And uh, so let me explain it really quickly. There's the literal sense, also called the historical sense. There's the uh, allegorical sense. So you've got the literal sense and you've got three spiritual senses. Of the three spiritual senses, the first is the allegorical sense, and this is where we see something in the eyes with the eyes of faith. Oftentimes, what it is is something in the Old Testament 
um, as typical of something in the New Testament. Uh, or we see something, uh, it, it, we, we hear a parable spoken and we uh, apply it to the life of faith. And we see here an allegory for something uh, greater. So, when St. Paul is talking about the, the, the Jews in the desert, he said these things were done for us for an allegory. Mm. So uh, we, we derive all these lessons on what happened to the people of God in the Old Testament, not because we're Jews, not because we are part of the Mosaic dispensation, not because you know we have to follow the Mosaic law or anything like that, but because all of these things establish the patterns, which when we see them in the eyes of faith, we understand certain spiritual truths out of them, right? Um, so then there's the tropological sense, which is a, a, a higher understanding, which is based upon turning the, um, it comes from the Greek word tropane, which is to, to turn, literally. You, you turn the biblical passage to yourself, as in, as in you make it a mirror, and you, and you look into it and you say, how do I do this? What is this demanding of me? So that it's, in that way, it's called the moral sense. But it's not just what do you have to do and what, what's the, what are the proper morals for you to live at this moment, what virtue to, to live and what vice to shun. But it's also how do I make sense of my life and how do I, how do I live my life in these uh, circumstances? Uh, and oftentimes there are biblical precedents for this. There are biblical passages which give us practical lessons for how to live. That's, trop that's tropology, the tropological sense. Okay. And again, it comes from the Greek word for to turn. And then <clears throat> the, uh, the most c complexified word, I guess, is anagogy, or the anagogical sense not analogical, but anagogical. And anagogical, um, uh, coming from a word for, basically, I think, to look up, um, it's the, the anagogy, it pertains to the eschatological realities, the afterlife, heaven, really, ultimately. Um, so, um, you know, think, of the, think in terms of Jerusalem. And in, in, we know that not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's a city. It's a place. Literally, it's a patch of real estate in, in the Middle East. But it's more than that. Um, in the eyes of faith, we, we look at Jerusalem to be the church. Uh, we look at Jerusalem to be, be the place where God's faithful dwell. So it wouldn't, the church's liturgy, much of it, wouldn't make sense. For instance, well, when, once Lent starts, we're going to be looking forward to um, Mid-Lent Thursday, and then the uh, Sunday following that, which is uh, Laetare Sunday. Right. And Laetare Sunday has as its intro it, Laetare Jerusalem, Rejoice Jerusalem. Well, are we... Are we talking about the inhabitants of this city rejoicing? No. We're talking about the church. So much of the church's liturgy, which refers to Jerusalem, really wouldn't make sense if you didn't understand that Jerusalem is the church. So that's, that's the allegorical reading of it. But then there's the tropological reading of it, that Jerusalem is that place where I dwell, and I have to be a good citizen of Jerusalem. I have to be a good citizen of the church. I have to speak the proper language of Jerusalem. The monks in the Old Testament used to, I mean, the monks in the uh, desert used to talk about the, um, they would assess a man quickly, and they had a sort of code that they used with each other, and they would say, he speaks the language of Jerusalem, or he speaks the language of Egypt. Mm. Speaking the language of Egypt meant you were worldly. Speaking the language of Jerusalem meant you were godly. And um, so we, we need to speak the language of Jerusalem. We need to act like we're the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that's a kind of a tropological reading. But then, anagogically, Jerusalem is heaven. It's the, it's the new Jerusalem, which St. John himself saw coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the dwelling, the everlasting dwelling of the saints, the city of God. Uh, so <clears throat> there's a, th th that's a quick relation of it. But what I had learned from Dr. Jones, reading a few things of his, um, principally two, really, but I also heard a series of lectures that he gave on it, um, is that in the, in the high Middle Ages, especially in the time of Innocent III, by the time we get there, the, the, um, what's called the quadriga, 
And by the way, if you look up Quadriga on, on, on Google or any search engine and you do an image search, you're going to find cool statues of, cool equestrian statues of some figure being hauled in a chariot by four horses. Okay. That's not the quadriga that I'm talking about. It's kind of <laughs> neat, but um, <coughs> the the quadriga, in this sense, is is the, the the name of the four sense. It's the collective name of the four senses of scripture. So the the quadriga, this way of exegeting scripture, in the high middle ages, wasn't simply a means of exegeting scripture. It was also a way, of, kind of an outlook on life. It was part of the what what I guess we might call our meta narrative, which we've talked about before. And um, having learned this from Dr. Jones and and kind of done some meditating on it um, a, a lot, actually, um, I began to write something which for me was just a series of um, private, rather personal meditations that I ended up sending to my spiritual director. And <clears throat> that sort of spun off and evolved into something that I wrote for my community members here about our life in community. And then I just kind of took that and, and polished it up a bit and, and, and um, slightly altered it and, um, and put it for general publication. Um, and I'm doing it in two parts. So the, the first part has the introduction and then it has the, something about the literal sense and then something about the al allegorical sense. And then the part that I'm going to publish in a, a little, about a week and a half, is going to be on the tropological and the anagogical senses. But the point is that these four senses can be applied to everything in your life. And this is a, you know, we talk about supernaturalizing our life. We talk about, you know, looking at things with the eyes of faith. But this is a way, at least for me, now some people might think, okay, that, that's for you, not me. But for me, uh, after I read Dr. Jones on this and really meditated, studied it more, um, wrote some things on it, um, you know, did a lot of thinking about it, um, I realized that this is a way of sort of systematizing our thoughts so that we can have an organized, orderly, intellectual approach to how to live. So when somebody says, for instance, you need to supernaturalize your, your, um, your relationships with people, well, how do you do that? Well, I took the quadriga and applied it to that. I applied it to my life in community here with, with my fellow slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And that's what the whole thing's about. Now, um, and, and as I said when I <laughs> threw it up on Twitter, you know, feel free to take this and use it for your own private meditations. Right. It's not, uh, I'm certainly not imposing this on anybody. And I'm trying not to be a spiritual voyeur, you know, one of these people who's... <laughs> Who's uh, you know got to subject you to every single thought that's ever gone through his mind? I mean, that we have to have a certain privacy about our interior lives. Yes, please, <laughs> please yeah. have some privacy, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you explain it here uh, in the in the introduction, uh, using the threefold medieval path to living one's life, uh, one's baptismal life. The doctor notes that whether one prays like a monk or cleric, fights like a knight, or works like a farmer or artisan, we each have our own tropology. That is our own way of living out the virtuous Christian life. Uh, which uh, Another thing that just is, is, is uh, providential to me, it's fascinating and providential at the same time, is this uh, uh, Dr. Andrew Willard Jones um, was unknown to me. I'd never heard his name before. And, you know, and I'm a pretty good study. Study. I, I've been running in these circles for 31 years. Uh, I never heard his name until A.A. Ron mentioned him in the chat room and the book Before Church and State. Um, and since, so he, he just pops up all of, He seems like to be a regular literary part of my life. He, he writes at New Polity. He gives, uh, he gives lectures. Uh, he wrote that book that I just mentioned. Um, and now he shows up here in uh, your wonderful uh, ad rem here, um, which you know, you're encouraging people to, uh, to, to study this and meditate upon it. And I think that that's the operative thing. Uh, you know, we're getting ready to head into Lent, brother. There's no better time to brush up on your, medita your, medit uh, your meditative life uh, then during uh, Lent, when you're when you're fasting and you're doing abstinence, to keep your mind off of how hungry you are, even if it's just for a purely corporeal reason. That oh man, I really want a double cheeseburger right now, or hey, hey, I'll even try. I'll even go for a peanut butter sandwich right now. 
Um, but we, but we, uh, we have a time coming up right now that is perfect for this, it seems uh, to me. So it's, it's fortuitous that you publish this the week before the week uh, or uh, in Septuagesima. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it could be a great part of our Lenten program. It, it's something that we need to realize about Lent. It's not a matter of what you're giving up. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying don't give things up for Lent. I'm not saying don't do, do that kind of um, penance by self-deprivation. We should be we should be depriving ourselves of things we like, and in fact, doing so is called mortification. It's 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 a it, we practice a detachment from earthly things and so forth. That's all good. But what we really need to focus on is uh, acquiring virtue and growing in love of our Lord. Uh, if it's just a matter of what we're giving up, we're not drawing close to Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're going away from certain things we happen to like. And if you do that, if you, if you do s attempt to practice certain deprivations without wishing to attach yourself to our Lord... And without making a conscious effort at doing that by praying more, turning your mind to him more, um, striving to grow in virtue more, doing things with the purity of intention for the love of God, and so forth. If you're not doing that, the deprivations are going to strike you at some point in the middle of them as arbitrary. And you'll end up mitigating it, or you'll end up also something that I'm really great at. Uh, well, I gave this up, so then I can make it up over here. Right? <laughs> so this is, I mean, it's just a standard part of, of human, you know, hu human psychology. I have an well, advantage. You know, I, 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 not, I'm not saying I do this, but I, I gave up meat so I can I can eat as much peanut butter as I want, you know. so I have an advanced Ph.D. degree in this, by the way. Yeah, so this is a standard thing that we do. No, I mean, the thing is we need to... I mean, I'm saying standard. It's actually unstandard. It, it, it actually falls short of the standard. Uh, but it's a, it's a common thing, right? Just like colds are common and, and, and evil's common. Um, but it, what we need to do is have a program that's going to be twofold. It's going to be, okay, here are things that I'm going to deprive myself of for the love of God and to grow closer with our Lord and to imitate him in his passion and to imitate his, you know, fasting in the desert. And here are things I'm going to try to acquire to do positively, mm. virtues to acquire, etc. Um, and I think I, I'm, 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 I've got a, an idea what I'm going to do based upon certain circumstances. I just noticed certain, a, a certain virtue kept leaping off the page at me when I was reading about it. And, and I read something that Sister Me Therese wrote for the next Manshipi. I had, to, I had to do the copy editing on it. And um, as I was doing this, uh, I, I, I said, you know, I think there's a message in here for me. Um, and um, so I'm going to, you know, go through this with my spiritual director and make sure that I have a Lenten program that he approves of. And um, and then go, and then go from there. But it's, if you're not trying to acquire a virtue or, or grow in virtue, which is all what tropology is, by the way, if you're not working to grow in virtue, then it's just an arbitrary exercise. It's and it's just a, okay. Well, I give this up, sort of like a diet, or I give this up just as a kind of a thing I do, just to show that I'm macho or something. And it becomes a sort of it can it can become a very pride-inducing kind of athleticism that doesn't, um, that's not really Christian asceticism, that's not really um, s something that, that uh, makes us grow in sanctity or grow in love of God and love of neighbor. Well, I, I was asked recently, Brother Andre Marie of uh, Reconquest uh, Radio here on the Crusade Channel and the uh, uh, the prior of the St. Benedict Center, and I'm going to ask you something about that in just a moment here. Uh, I was asked, uh, I get asked every year about uh, six weeks ago or so, or maybe uh, three weeks ago or so, Mike, do you want to do Exodus 90 with us? And I always say the same answer, no. And then I kind of get a uh, a guilt-ridden, tratty stare back, like, why not? <laughs> and I go, like, because I want to do something in Lent that I think I'm actually capable of doing and it will <laughs> that will, will help me towards what you just said. Um, and I don't think that that's it. So if you want to do it, fine. But as you just said, don't do it for this uh, the, 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 this kind of um, uh, to to uh, have this this prideful boast 
that you did it. And that I made it to Exodus 90. Did you become holier? Were you more, are you more charitable? Uh, are you more faithful? Are, are you more aware? That's something I need to work on. It's, and seriously, are you more aware of the corporal works of mercy? Did you do any? You know, and I would answer right now, uh, I, I did one. I did one. Uh, these, I think this, this is what you're talking about. Um, and and, and, and uh, the pursuit of virtue and the, the pursuit of holiness and getting closer to our Lord uh, is, is, is the reason for this. Uh, which would then the next question is someone's probably going to access in the chat room is going to send me, I wish you would have put a Ronnie Marie. Would you, and, and again, I'm not get, trying to get you to, to play spiritual director, but perhaps you know the work better than, uh, than others. Uh, is reading then Thomas Akempis' uh, Imitation of Christ book during Lent a, a, a good exercise? Oh, sure. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's I have these it. things that's. I have a copy works. that a listener gift, gifted me, brother, in a leather bound edition, quickly, and I've never opened it. I mean, I've opened it because he, he, give, he sent it to me, and I was, maybe this will be my Lenten reading. Yeah. It's not, it, 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 and of course, the Imitation of Christ is not like. Um, a novel or something. I mean, you, it's, it's the kind of thing that's meant to be read slowly, you know, okay. bit by bit. Sort of like St. Teresa of Avila recommends doing Lexio, and that is to say that uh, she, she, she compared it to a sparrow or a small bird drinking water. You know, they, they take a little bit in their beak and then they, and then they um, kind of um, look up and throw their heads back and the, 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 the fluid goes down their little sparrow throats and then they and then they return to it to, to, to take another sip they're not chug-a-lugging it right mm -hmm. so we, we don't chug-a-lug <laughs> spiritual reading huh we take little sips <laughs> and and slowly drink it and, and 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 let it have its effect and then move on uh, so that, that 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 we owe that to Saint Teresa of Avila that, that and brother Francis loved that and because he loved it so much I, I have it on my mind now, now before we depart from and I want all of you to go and read brothers ad rem at catholicism.org you'll find it under the style of supernaturalizing our social interactions uh, before we leave this very fertile uh, topic here that I that I hope our listeners benefit from uh, greatly uh, brother uh, dr. Andrew Willard Jones, uh, makes uh, the uh, the point in uh, in what you draw from here for from this ad rim about how in the medieval times about how you know their life was just it, it, it's different completely different from you know the hustle and bustle of modern life and some of the things many or, or many of the things that they did is what led. You know, we often you look at Notre Dame de, uh, de Paris. You look at the magnificent structures. You know, you you, you go to uh, to Austria where Charles Coulomb is, or you you go to Italy, and you just think to yourself, "Man, my lord, who built this? How? <laughs> I'm always looking at the the how. How did they do this? There isn't a lot of this kind of construction that's going on today." I mean, people aren't, I mean, there, there's not to say there aren't beautiful church structures being built, because I have seen some, and there are, but not like it would have been in the medieval ages, and, and, and of course, before uh, the, the revolt, uh, Luther's revolt. Um, so there must have been something that was driving this. Something that was that was driving these men that they would and, and brother if you, and, and I and I know you probably know the history of this better than I but I know a little bit about it. If you read the history of Notre Dame de Paris, you know, you'll find out a couple of things that uh, Saint King Louis the Ninth paid for that beautiful Rosetta or, or that that stained glass that round circular glass thing. He actually supplied the uh, uh, the funding for that. He never got to see it, it. He died before it was completed. It, I mean, when you look at how long these things took to build, the people who started them never saw them when they were completed. But they must have thought they were transcendent, though, right? Yeah, that's the beauty the was transcendent, right? So he died. Saint King Louis died before he got to see this thing completed. And by the way, I was I was reading an article about this. It might have been from Sir Roger Scruton about how they had to figure out how to make that glass window work because it bears like I can't remember how many tons of rock 
but it bears weight on top of it. Well, why doesn't it fall to the ground? Why isn't the glass crushed? Lying buttresses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, and, and so they figured it out. I mean, the point is that they, 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 so when people say, you Catholics, you're just you're anti-progress. You're well, before they built that window, they didn't know how to do a round enclosure filled with glass like that, but they figured it out. So that was actually an advancement in architecture. Um, but this era, uh, you, you know, one of the knocks against, uh, against some of us tratties, as you like to call them, brother, is that we want to go back to live in the 14th century. We don't want electricity. We don't want running. Actually, water. I don't want the bubonic plague. No, <laughs> <laughs> we want it. We, we want to fight. I the want the 13th century, Mike. It was before okay, the 13th century. Okay, we, 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 yeah, we, we don't want to be uh, flagellists, right? <laughs> we, no. we want to go back and become flagellists. Uh, you don't want running water. You don't fl want fl flagellants. 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 Okay. Word you're looking for. Yes. 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 They 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 walked around thinking they were they were, they were more Mortifying themselves uh, by whipping themselves on the back uh, as a mortification to, uh, to bring it into the play. But we, we want to go back to the 13th century, and we want to live. We, we, we want to live in mud huts. We don't want running water. We want to have to fight food poisoning all the time. Remember, there was no light. Any film you ever see about about the, the, the that age, the 13th century, everything is dark and miserable. There is mold and mildew everywhere. Everything is dank. There's always dead bodies laying in the streets. No one's clothes are ever. Uh, no one is dressed uh, impeccably unless you're in a castle. Uh, so they accuse us of wanting all these things. No, I I I I, I rather. Pride myself on my sartorial choices, if you will. There's a big word for you. And uh, haberdash, another word we can bring back into our into our language. Language. What we want is, is we like I said in an email yesterday. I don't want a parallel economy. I want a Christian economy. There's a difference. I want the I, I want the, the the system of trade and and of exchange of Christendom. That's what that's what we sh we should aspire for, but we get accused of having this fetish that we you know what they call us live action LARPers. role player. That's right, yeah, LARPers. You want to be a LARP? No, I don't want to be a LARPer. <laughs> no, we just want to live in a Christian society. That's and of it. Of course, obviously, Mike. You know, we, 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 this conversation shouldn't have to be happening because we're both using modern technology to do this. So, uh, we're not LARPers, and we're not into. Um, let's just return to things that that could only be done with 13th century technology. Um, that's not. It's not a question of turning back the hands on the clock. Right. It's a. It's a question of living the Christian virtues now. And if we can look back at different times in the history of the church, looking at the examples of the saints, looking at the examples of intelligent Christians and how they dealt with the challenges of their own age as examples, well then, yeah, well, let's do that. Exactly. Um, exactly. But that doesn't that you know we have, but we have to meet the challenges of this age. I mean, you could you can you know I, I was watching a documentary on Real Crusades history uh, yesterday about the the second time that the Mongols attempted to invade Hungary and how the Hungarians were ready for them at that point, because the first invasion, the the Hungarians got their got their backsides kicked, and the, the but the, but by the time the second one came. Uh, they were ready. Now they had spent decades preparing, and the the preparation paid off. And by the way, the king that did all the preparations, he died before the invasion happened. It was one of his successors. Talk about you know building something that you'll never see. Right. It was one of his successors that sort of um, reaped what had been sown by his by his predecessor, uh, as far as preparing Hungary with fortifications and um, and knights. Uh, including bringing in members of the um, of the um, uh, Knights of um, not St. John of Malta, but the Knights of the, the Knights Templar. Um, so this this kind of um, preparation uh, that that was done was very impressive. And you look and you're like, wow, okay, how can we apply that now? Well, you can't. <laughs> well, that, you can't. Right, I right. mean, so the the innovation then was heavy artillery and the crossbow. Uh, and and that's what they used to to whip. Uh, I mean, not heavy artillery. Excuse me, hev heavily armored knights. Um, 
and that's what they used to, and, 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 and certain um, stone fortifications in the, in the towns, so that the townspeople wouldn't allow themselves to be pillaged and feed the, uh, the invading Mongols who, who sacked their farms. Because what they did was they packed up all the food, all the animals, and they went into these stone fortifications where they could lay hold up for a very long time while the Mongolians starved outside. Um, so, but that technology is not, you know, something that you, you can imitate. I mean, you can imitate the foresightfulness, you can imitate the um, industriousness, you know, the fortitude and so forth that it took to do that. But, you know, you don't say, well, th th oh, this is a technological model we can use today. No, all you no. need is one drone with a big bomb in it and boom, you're gone. That, that's right. And always remember when you're thinking about all of these things, folks. Liberace was right. <laughs> that Liberace was right, uh, brother. Now you, you now I have an, uh, another follow-up question because you stoked my imagination or my memory, and I'm having a memory spasm. Was it during the first invasion? Was was, was the Mongols? Did the Mongols leave because uh, a, a future someone who would be canonized as a saint went out and asked them to lead or commanded them to leave? Or do I have the no, wrong no, no, invasion? No, no. That, 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 that's a different episode. Okay, that's, that's, when the, that's when the Huns invaded. The Huns, Rome. that's what it is. Okay, all right. Um, uh, Brother Andre Maurice, St. Benedict Center and Reconquest is on uh, radio. On so uh, it's it's almost a thousand year difference between those two events. Okay. Uh, well, so who who got to the Huns? Was it a Gregory? It was a Leo. A Leo. It was a great Leo. Leo the Great. Leo the Great. Uh, learn something new every day, children, right here on the uh, on Wisdom Wednesday. Brother, let's talk about your least favorite subject, but one that may not be as, uh, as uh, antagonizing as it was six days ago, and that's the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And the, uh, the, the discovery by Kyle Serafin, or the, the whistleblower, of this memo where uh, traditionalist Catholics were cited as being extremists and all, every other sort of, of, of pillory that you can imagine here. Not true. A calumny that was hurled uh, at you and others that you know. Uh, you know E. Michael Jones. You know Michael Matt. You know John Venari, I'm sure, and uh, Catholic Family News. You probably knew everyone on that list. Um, Just uh, Tom Trelesky, too. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've met and, and, and um, cavorted with uh, at various functions um, most of the people on that list, I believe. Father Nicholas Gruner, who was, died, he was dead, but he was one of the founders of the Fatima. Um, he, yeah, he was the founder. He was the founder. The so, so you knew the people on his list. Now, the FBI came out and said, no, 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 that's not how we conduct business. This, this, this affair isn't, uh, this isn't how this is, uh, how we do business. And, and, and they kind of basically try to retract or walk it back. To me, this is just like, well, what would have happened if we didn't have Kyle Serafin? Well, as jo as Joe Doyle pointed out to me in a private correspondence, he said, yeah, they, they said this doesn't meet the um, exacting standards of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And Joe Doyle said, the first of which is don't get caught. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and I'm, when I read exacting standards, I went, yeah, it does. Russia, Russia, Russia. Yes, it does. Rob Blagojevich. I can give you 30 examples. Um, and as Kyle oh. Serafin in the interview was saying, this is uh, that's not the bureau that I joined. That's not that's and that's not why I joined the bureau. Um, but it does bring up the the uh, uh, the point. And there's a there's a, I didn't send it to you, but there is an essay today at the Federalist and uh, thefederalist.com. And I don't know this woman. Her name is Karina Benton. And this is the title of her essay. FBI's targeting of traditional Catholics must be music to the Vatican's ears. And the subheading is the orthodoxy of traditional Catholics makes them prime targets not just for Biden's injustice department, emphasis mine, but for the globalist-aligned Church of Francis. And I, uh, I thought the piece was so good that I actually quoted her in my Veritas at Sapientia today. 
The FBI per, FBI's persecution of Catholic fathers for their pro-life advocacy is sickening enough. But the monitoring of a teeny subset of Catholics based on their beliefs and mode of worship is an appalling new low. The FBI memorandum has received widespread condemnation with Virginia Attorney General Jason Miaris and now 19 other state attorneys general demanding, and I hope that Jeff Landry's on this list, that the FBI order agency personnel not to target Americans based on their religious beliefs and practices and reveal to the American public the extent to which they have engaged in such activities. Now, this is what we, that you would hope the bow ideal, if you will, is the end result of this, is that now that you've been caught, there should be an investigation. If Congress wants to investigate something in the FBI other than Russia, 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 this one is ripe for picking here. And this actually is a case where the First Amendment actually does apply. And you know I'm not an incorporationist. I don't incorporate the first ten amendments for use to uh, eight amendments for use as a cudgel to bludgeon the states with. Um, but this wouldn't be an incorporation. This is actually why there is a first amendment. Um, and I know that you wrote a, 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 a stinging rebuke to this, where you just categorically denied this. But something was revealed in that that I bet most of our listeners don't look, but brother. And that is that when Tom Potak and the Southern Poverty, Poverty uh, Fleece Center, when uh, if they first went after the St. Benedict Center and, and, and lied about what, what, you, what you do there and, and how you do it, um, that you actually got FBI agents to come out to the center, and you asked them to come. That's kind of unprecedented. Can you tell our listeners about that? Oh, yeah, you bet. So uh, what happened was we got written up in the SPLC's um, quote-unquote intelligence report, which, you know, the name of it is itself LARPing. You know, they're pretending to be, they're, it's pretending to be some sort of government intelligence thing. And what they do, and so this, this I found out shortly afterwards. I was like, who's the Southern Poverty Law Center? Oh, those guys. Okay, yeah, they're, they're, who cares what they say? They're obviously liars. Um, and, you know, they were, they were woke before woke was cool. Um, I'm I'm reading this stuff, thinking, okay, well, it's it's it's. I sort of had the response of the Spanish uh, w with the um, black legend, like, okay, it's all lies, so who cares? I'm not going to honor it by 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 response. Somebody pointed out to me, brother, they send this stuff to law enforcement, federal law enforcement, state law enforcement, and local law enforcement. Mm. They send these intelligence reports out as if they are warning uh, law enforcement agencies of things that are on the horizon. And some people actually take them seriously. So when I heard that, now of course I had actually already responded online. Um, I, I, I didn't think that it would actually be a serious thing as far as um, you know some actual existential threat of any sort. Right. So I had I had written about the lies and because it was it, it, this all happened at a time when we were uh, particularly controversial in the town. Shortly after this, we were trying to build our chapel, and they used um, the the believe it or not, the planning board um, chairman was a card literal card carrying member of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So this ended ended up in the litigation that we had against the town, which we prevailed upon, so that we could build our chapel. Um, so th this was this was something that really really complicated our existence for literally years. Right. Um, so when a friend of mine who worked. Um, as a dispatcher in uh, a local town police force told me that thing about the Southern Poverty Law Center, I said, well, thanks, Kathy. I guess I have to do some other things. So I went and met with, the, with, with, the lo with a local police chief. We have a lot of small police departments around mm -hmm. here, and they're very good. Um, I went and met with a, uh, one of the local police chiefs, and he was like, yeah, yeah, you don't need to tell me anymore. I, I know. I'm convinced. I don't listen to those guys anyway. So then I decided, you know what? I'm going to call in the FBI, and I'm going to tell them we have been lied about, we've been detracted, we've been slandered and defamed as some sort of a hate group, and I want you to come here and see where we don't hide the guns and the ammo heaps and the and the, uh, you know, the explosives and all the other things that we need to perform our terrorist activity, which we never plan on doing anyway. Um, so I called them up. I, call, I didn't know what to do. I ended up calling the, 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 the Bureau's center in Boston because that, that was the, the, the only local office. Well, they have stuff in New Hampshire, but I guess they all are officially out of the Boston office, at least at that time they were. 
So I called them, and they're like, well, what are you reporting? Uh, and I said, well, I'm not reporting a crime. We've been accused of being criminals, basically, and I want to meet with somebody in the FBI to explain to them the actual situation. So um, they actually sent out two agents, and they sat down in my office and met with me. I told them about what had been said about us, and... and um, the, at one point, the, there was an there was an older one and a younger one, and and one was an Italian Catholic and the other one was an Irish Catholic. <laughs> and the Italian Catholic, whose name I still remember, but I'm not going to give him a shout out on the air because I don't think it would be proper. No, don't. But um, this this gentleman that said, "Look, brother, I, I hate to c- cut you short, but we looked into this when it first came out, and we know it's." nonsense so you have nothing to worry about we just wanted to come out here to assure you they just wanted to come out for an autograph (laughs) (laughs) well it turns out i found out later there's a guy who's now a school dad he's a graduate of our school now he has a couple of his sons in the school and in fact his oldest son is a graduate also of the school so this family is a second generation ihm family um he was at that time a police officer for the town of Ringe. And they and the FBI guys, of course, have to work with local law enforcement. So they happened to know Joe. This And they said, didn't you go to their school? And they said, like, yeah. And they said, read this. And they showed him the thing. He's like, yeah, this is crap. <laughs> Nonsense. And they said, okay. And they took his word. Now, Joe's a good guy. He's, he was a good cop. He got out of it. He's, he's in construction now because he can't stand what's been done to the police. But, Completely understand um, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I could tell you the story, but it would take too long. So um, the, the, the bottom line is the, uh, we called them in. They reassured me. We don't believe it. There's nothing to it. We, we, we're, we're fine. You know, I invited them. I said, look around. Look wherever you want to look. Observe anything you want. They're like, yeah, we don't need to do that. Well, what was interesting was when years later a certain cleric who um, did something really evil to us called the FBI and accused us of human trafficking. I remember. That same Italian Catholic um, agent that assured me we were okay was one of the two that, sent, that came out uh, to look into this matter. And he met with the supposed kidnap victim who assured him that she was here all on her own. Um, she had nothing to fear. She loved life here and so forth. And uh, they gave her her card and we supplied her with a cell phone that she could call the FBI at any moment when she, that she wanted to. And in fact, at the time, we were actually fearful that somebody might actually kidnap her. Um, it re- re- I mean, it's like, this is like, you know... Well, this is some uh, mysterious intrigue that I hadn't heard before. Oh, my... I know this, the case because I, 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 kn- I knew you then, and I, I know exactly what happened. I read all about it. You were sending things, and I know who you're talking about, but I did not know that you were... <laughs> this is like Carol Burnett's As the Stomach Churns. It's, <laughs> it's a real soap opera. Um, but we, no, we, we ended up, uh, we ended up, we, she still has that phone. I mean, anytime she wants to call the FBI, <laughs> she can, she's got the guy's She can number. drop a dime. <laughs> she, in fact, I think she's got it memorized. She's never used it, but the, 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 the and, and now she's happily Professor Vows and, 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 and so forth. In fact, um, she's, she happens to be standing outside the, the, the window, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, 50 yards in the distance. I happen to see that she's outside because the little kids are on a break right now. But um, anyway, the, uh, the, the, that cleric used the SPLC with the FBI. Of course he did. So when, when, when the FBI agent came out, it was the same guy. And, and, and he's like, yeah, okay, well, here, we need to do this. We need to, we need to have an assessment. By the way, that same cleric then told a certain Roman Bacastery that we were being investigated by the FBI. And that's one of the reasons they gave why the, why they didn't wouldn't honor our hierarchical recourse against his actions. Wow. And the interesting thing is that the FBI never actually investigated us. They did what they called an assessment, which is like a preliminary look look into a thing, and they dropped it right away. Uh, by the time this priest tells Rome that we were being investigated by the FBI, the assessment was over and done with, so it wasn't even true. 
And yet, so he craft he cra so my, my my point in saying this what what this lady it's Molly Hemming or whoever says this about the FBI about the FBI basically doing the Vatican's work or, or whatever against traditionalists I have experienced we have experienced this in our actual life it has actually complicated our lives because what happened was a local guy not the Vatican but a local guy uh, in the Chancery created the FBI so-called, quote-unquote, investigation, which wasn't an investigation. He created by calling the FBI. Well, uh, her name is Karina Benton, and okay. the conclusion of her article is just is, is perfect. She says, traditional Catholics thwart the church. Now, she means the church of, uh, of, of those that are, uh, that are opposed. Uh, so, the regime. Yeah, the regime. She's not talking about the Anshan regime. She means the re regime here. Uh, brother, we're, we're, we went a little long here, and I want to wrap up because I want to get you back to your, to your real job. Uh, but I just want to drop in because I see at Catholicism.org that the, in the news, uh, news headlines, um, I uh, see all glory to God. Chiefs but Butker makes game-winning kick in the Super Bowl while wearing scapular. It's even better than that. He's a traditionalist. Yes, and our very own Mike Parrott is best friends with him. Oh, really? Mike told the story yesterday because, okay, I have to confess, Harrison has been to this house many times. He was my oldest son's god or, or sponsor at his confirmation. Um, he comes over often. Uh, he told he told a story about his wife. Yeah, he is a very traditional, uh, traditional-minded Catholic, and uh, we actually know someone that knows him. So <laughs> uh, I just wanted to, to drop that in, that, uh, uh, that Harrison... Uh, maybe there's an interview in the future, off-season. <laughs> or, or maybe Mike does one on uh, Parrot Talk. Brother, what is... Uh, uh, I know because I saw the email, but what is the topic of tonight's reconquest? Uh, tonight's reconquest is called Expanding on St. Thomas's Fifth Way. Um, we, we took... Um, I've, been, I've been doing some apologetic stuff. We were recording an apologetic series for the St. Augustine Institute. Mm. And I uh, took, um, so we're going through the five ways to prove God's existence. And there's actually five classes on uh, the, in the apologetics course, there's going to be five classes on proving God's existence. And I'm, I'm structuring it around St. Thomas's um, five proofs. So um, I'm, I'm just, I was doing some preparation. I was reading this fantastic book. And I realized that there was this uh, wonderful um, argument here, some in very interesting material, and I took that and used it for my reconquest. So it's it's um, yeah, it's, if you look, if you're familiar with the five proofs for God's existence, I did a, uh, a reconquest just on that a couple of weeks ago, and then I yes. determined that I would just. Do a follow-up where we did sort of a deep dive into one of the five proofs. That's what this is. Fantastic, and uh, also, so when will this uh, the uh, the series will be completed soon? I assume. Uh, well, it's going to be. Um, I forget how many parts the whole thing is. Thirteen parts. I forget. No, it's going to take a while for okay. to finish the recording. Uh, very well then. Uh, you can uh, get brothers' uh, previous episodes of Reconquest at CrusadeChannel.com. And as I said, the the lost episodes. <laughs> they lost the first fifty-seven episodes of the Honeymooners, and uh, Showtime found them in a can somewhere, and they restored them back in the eighties. And it was a big uh, cable television coup, if you will, at the time. Well, there's going to be an internet radio coup when we restore the first 141 episodes of Reconquest, baby. The world so does not know... instead of lost in space, it's, it's lost in cyberspace. <laughs> it's lost in cyberspace. <laughs> oh, brother's got funnies. Uh, brother's got funnies. Oh, by the way, and I, I completely forgotten this, because and I didn't even know who he was at the time. Episode number one of Reconquest who was the guest? Go ahead, tell him. Who was the guest? It was Charles. Charles. Charles Coulomb. Charles Coulomb. <laughs> and I have uh, never even, uh, I didn't even know who Charles Coulomb was at the time. Uh, and, and by the way, brother, while we're doing this first episode, remember, uh, uh, after all, uh, Liberace was right. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that insanity yet. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of these days, I'm going to have to. I, he and I exchanged text messages a couple days ago. Yesterday, <laughs> in fact. 
But uh, one of these days, I'm going to have to ask him the backstory behind the Liberace is right thing. I was I was I was talking to someone who is a big Charles Coulomb aficionado the other day, and I and I went, oh, after all, look, the Liberace was right, and he goes. Your impersonation of him is scary good. He, he goes, you can deep fake him if you wanted to. <laughs> I can do a show. Okay, so you make him sound like he's got a cold, though. Uh, I, I, I can do a show as Charles. Uh, uh, well, I, if I was going to deep fake him, I, I would immerse myself in Coulomb for a day or so. <laughs> I'd have all the mannerisms down, and uh, I, I, maybe I would, I, I would, I would make him out to have a volcano. A vocation different than the one he has today. <laughs> if I were going to do that, in any event, uh, brother Andre, uh, or like or like Charles Coulomb uh, being uh, being a, a, a sportscaster for the Super Bowl, that would be something he would never actually do. That would be funny. <laughs> it would be funny. Well, there was a chaser on the thirty-eight yard line there. <laughs> Charles Coulomb as John Madden. <laughs> well, then he comes out here, goes, monkey go. And then he goes bam. And then look at it. And then this guy's here. Well, this guy's. Actually, if you've ever been to a party with Charles, he is John Madden. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you get a couple, you get a couple fingers of, uh, of bourbon in Charles, and he is John Madden. Uh, brother, give our best to the uh, 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 to uh, to the sisters and to the other brothers and the community of the Saint Benedict Center. A uh, uh, blessed uh, upcoming a Shrove Tuesday to you. I will be in Tampa, Florida. Giving uh, the inaugural address for the um, the count uh, the the, uh, the the Council of Saint John the Apostle, a little lay ministry that they founded at the Church of the Epiphany in Tampa, Florida. Nice. Is that Ashley's church? It is. It is. So uh, I am very much looking forward to to, to uh, 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 inundating them with all things fat. Tuesday. <laughs> so uh, uh, it, it will be fun. So a blessed to Shrove Tuesday coming to you, uh, brother. And we'll, uh, actually, I won't be here next Wednesday because I'll be on an airplane. So uh, you get to act, act all Ash Wednesday EE and stuff. <laughs> so, okay, so I'll just... I'll just be like Job, sitting on my dung heap with my ashes on me and <laughs> wait, waiting for next Wednesday. All right. Well, we'll see you in two weeks then, brother. God bless. Thank you very much. All right. God bless you, Mike, and God bless our listeners. Thank you.